Section 40 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mormus. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. Fourth Book, The World as Will. Second Aspect. The Assertion and Denial of the Will to Live When Self-Consciousness Has Been Attained. Sections 66 and 67. A theory of morals without proof, that is, mere moralizing, can affect nothing, because it does not act as a motive. A theory of morals which does act as a motive can do so only by working on self-love. But what springs from the source has no moral worth. It falls from this that no genuine virtue can be produced through moral theory or abstract knowledge in general, but that such virtue must spring from that intuitive knowledge which recognizes in the individuality of others the same nature as in our own. For virtue certainly proceeds from knowledge, but not from the abstract knowledge that can be communicated through words. If it were so, virtue could be taught, and by here expressing in abstract language its nature and the knowledge which lies at its foundation, we should make everyone who comprehends this even ethically better. But this is by no means the case. On the contrary, ethical discourses and preaching will just as little produce a virtuous man as all the systems of aesthetics from Aristotle downwards have succeeded in producing a poet. For the real inner nature of virtue, the concept is unfruitful just as it is in art and it is only in a completely subordinate position that can be of use as a tool in the elaboration and preserving of what has been ascertained and inferred by other means vela non discutur abstract dogmas are in fact without influence upon virtue i e upon the goodness of the disposition false dogmas do not disturb it true ones will scarcely assist it it would in fact be a bad lookout if the cardinal fact in the life of man his ethical worth that worth which counts for eternity were dependent upon anything the attainment of which is so much a matter of chance as is the case with dogmas religious doctrines and philosophical theories for morality dogmas have this value only the man who has become virtuous from knowledge of another kind which is presently to be considered possesses in them a scheme or formula according to which he accounts to his own reason for the most part fictitiously for his non-egoistical action the nature of which it i e he himself does not comprehend and with which account he has accustomed it to be content upon conduct outward action dogmas may certainly exercise a powerful influence as also custom and example the last because the ordinary man does not trust his judgment of the weakness of which he is conscious but only follows his own or someone else's experience but the disposition is not altered in this way all abstract knowledge gives only motives but as was shown above motives can only alter the direction of the will not the will itself all communicable knowledge however can only affect the will as a motive thus when dogmas lead it what the man really and in general wills remains still the same he has only received different thoughts as to the ways in which it is to be attained and imaginary motives guide him just like real ones therefore for example it is all one as regards his ethical worth 
whether he gives large gifts to the poor, firmly persuaded that he will receive everything tenfold in a future life, or expends the same sum on the improvements of an estate which will yield interest, certainly late, but all the more surely and largely. And he who for the sake of orthodoxy commits a heretic to the flames is as much a murderer as the bandit who does it for gain. And indeed, as regards the inward circumstances, so also was he who slaughtered the Turks in the Holy Land, if, like the burner of heretics, he really did so because he thought that he would thereby gain a place in heaven. For these are careful only for themselves, for their own egoism, just like the bandit, from whom they are only distinguished by the absurdity of their means. From without, as has been said, the will can only be reached through motives, and these only alter the way in which it expresses itself, never the will itself. Vela non discutur. In the case of good deeds, however, the doer of which appeals to dogmas, we must always distinguish whether these dogmas really are the motives which lead to the good deeds, or whether, as is said above, they are merely the elusive account of them with which he seeks to satisfy his own reason with regard to a good deed which really flows from quite a different source a deed which he does because he is good though he does not understand how to explain it rightly and yet wishes to think something with regard to it but this distinction is very hard to make because it lies in the heart of a man therefore we can scarcely ever pass a correct moral judgment on the action of others and very seldom on our own the deeds and conduct of an individual and of a nation may be very much modified through dogmas example and custom but in themselves all deeds opera operata are merely empty forms and only the disposition which leads to them gives them moral significance this disposition however may be quite the same when its outward manifestation is very different with an equal degree of wickedness one man may die on the wheel and another in the bosom of his family it may be the same grade of wickedness which expresses itself in one nation in the coarse characteristics of murder and cannibalism and in another finely and softly in miniature in court intrigues oppressions and delicate plots of every kind the inner nature remains the same it is conceivable that a perfect state or perhaps indeed a complete and firmly believed doctrine of rewards and punishments after death might prevent every crime politically much would be gained thereby morally nothing only the expression of the will in life would be restricted thus genuine goodness of disposition disinterested virtue and pure nobility do not proceed from abstract knowledge yet they do proceed from knowledge but it is a direct intuitive knowledge which can neither be reasoned away and nor arrived at by reasoning a knowledge which just because it is not abstract cannot be communicated but must arise in each for himself which therefore finds its real and adequate expression not in words but only in deeds in conduct in the course of the life of man we who here seek the theory of virtue and have therefore also to express abstractly the nature of the knowledge which lies at its foundation will yet be unable to convey that knowledge itself in this expression we can only give the concept of this knowledge and thus always start from action in which alone it becomes visible and refer to action as its only adequate expression we can only explain and interpret action i e express abstractly what really takes place in it before we speak of the good proper in opposition to the bad which has been explained we must touch on intermediate grade the mere negation of the bad this is justice the nature of right and wrong has been full explained above therefore we may briefly say here 
that he who voluntarily recognizes and observes those merely moral limits between wrong and right even where this is not secured by the state or any other external power thus he who according to our explanation never carries the assertion of his own will so far as to deny the will appearing in another individual is just thus in order to increase his own well-being he will not inflict suffering upon others i e he will commit no crime he will respect the rights and properties of others we see that for such a just man the principium individuationis is no longer as in the case of the bad man an absolute wall of partition we see that he does not like the bad man merely assert his own manifestation of will and deny all others that other persons are not for him mere masks whose nature is quite different from his own but he shows in his conduct that he also recognizes his own nature the will to live as a thing in itself in the foreign manifestation which is only given to him as an idea thus he finds himself again in that other manifestation up to a certain point that of doing no wrong i e abstain from injury to this extent therefore he sees through the principium individuationis the veil of mea so far he sets the being external to him on a level with his own he doesn't know injury if we examine the inmost nature of this justice there already lies in it the resolution not to go so far in the assertion of one's own will as to deny the manifestations of will of others by compelling them to serve one's own one will therefore wish to render to others as much as one receives from them the highest degree of this justice of disposition which is however always united with goodness proper whose character is no longer merely negative extends so far that a man doubts his right to inherited property wishes to support his body only by his own powers mental and physical feels every service of others and every luxury a reproach and finally embraces voluntary poverty thus we see how pascal when he became an ascetic could no longer permit any services to be rendered to him although he had servants enough in spite of his constant bad health he made his bed himself brought his own food from the kitchen quite in keeping with this it is reported that many hindus even rajas with great wealth expend it merely on the maintenance of their position the courts and attendants and themselves observe with the greatest scrupulousness the maxim that a man should eat nothing that he has not himself both sowed and reaped yet a certain misunderstanding lies at the bottom of this one man just because he is rich and powerful can render such signal services to the whole of human society that they counterbalance the wealth he has inherited for the secure possession of which he is indebted to society in reality that excessive justice of such hindus is already more than justice it is actual renunciation denial of the will to live asceticism of which we will speak less on the other hand pure idleness and living through the exertions of others in the case of inherited wealth without accomplishing anything may be regarded as morally wrong even if it must remain right according to positive laws we have found that voluntary justice has its inmost source in a certain degree of penetration of the principium individuationis while the unjust remain entirely involved in this principle this penetration may exist not only in the degree which is required for justice but also in the higher degree which leads to benevolence and well-doing to love of mankind and this may take place however strong and energetic in itself the will which appears in such an individual may be knowledge can always counterbalance it in him teach him to resist the tendency drawn and even produce in him every degree of goodness and indeed of resignation 
Thus the good man is by no means to be regarded as originally a weaker manifestation of will than the bad man, but it is knowledge which in him masters the blind striving of will. There are certainly individuals who merely seem to have a good disposition on account of the weakness of the will appearing in them, but what they are soon appears from the fact that they are not capable of any remarkable self-conquest in order to perform a just or good deed. If, however, as a rare exception, we meet a man who possesses a considerable income, but uses very little of it for himself and gives all the rest to the poor, while he denies himself many pleasures and comforts, and we seek to explain the actions of this man, we shall find, apart altogether from the dogmas through which he tries to make his actions intelligible to his reason, that the simplest general expression and the essential character of his conduct is that he makes less distinction than is usually made between himself and others. This distinction is so great in the eyes of many that the suffering of others is a direct pleasure to the wicked and a welcome means of happiness to the unjust. The merely just man is content not to cause it, and, in general, most men know and are acquainted with innumerable sufferings of others in their vicinity, but do not determine to mitigate them, because to do so would involve some self-denial on their part. Thus, in each of all these, a strong distinction seems to prevail between his ego and that of others. On the other hand, to the noble man we have imagined, this distinction is not so significant. The form of the phenomenon no longer holds him so tightly in its grasp. But the suffering which he sees in others touches him almost as closely as his own. He therefore tries to strike a balance between them, denies himself pleasures, practices renunciation in order to mitigate the sufferings of others. He sees that the distinction between himself and others, which to the bad man is so great a gulf, only belongs to a fleeting and elusive phenomenon. He recognizes directly and without reasoning that the in itself of his own manifestation is also that of others, the will to live which constitutes the inner nature of everything and lives in all, indeed, that this applies also to the brutes and the whole of nature, and therefore he will not cause suffering even to a brute. He is now just as little likely to allow others to starve, while he himself has enough and to spare, as any one would be to suffer hunger one day in order to have more the next day than he could enjoy. For to him who does works of love, the veil of Maya has become transparent. The illusion of the Principium Individuationis has left him. He recognizes himself, his will, in every being, and consequently also in the sufferer. He is now free from the perversity with which the will to live not recognizing itself here in one individual enjoys a fleeting and precarious pleasure and there another pays for it with suffering and starvation and thus both inflicts and endures misery not knowing that like thyestus it eagerly devours its own flesh and then on the one hand laments its undeserved suffering and on the other hand transgresses without fear of nemesis always merely because involved in the principium individuationis thus generally in the kind of knowledge which is governed by the principle of sufficient reason it does not recognize itself in the foreign phenomenon and therefore does not perceive eternal justice to be cured of this illusion and deception of maya and to do works of love are one and the same but the latter is the necessary and inevitable symptom of that knowledge the opposite of the steen of conscience the origin and significance of which is explained above is the good conscience the satisfaction which we experience after every disinterested deed 
it arises from the fact that such a deed as it proceeds from the direct recognition of our own inner being in the phenomenon of another affords us also the verification of this knowledge the knowledge that our true self exists not only in our own person this particular manifestation but in everything that lives by this the heart feels itself enlarged as by egoism it is contracted for as the latter concentrates our interest upon the particular manifestation of our own individuality upon which knowledge always presents to us the innumerable dangers which constantly threaten this manifestation and anxiety and care becomes the keynote of our disposition the knowledge that everything living is just as much our own inner nature as is our own person extends our interest to everything living and in this way the heart is enlarged thus through the diminished interest in our own self the anxious care for the self is attacked as very root and limited hence the peace the unbroken serenity which a virtuous disposition and a good conscience affords and the more distinct appearances of this with every good deed for it proves to ourselves the depth of that disposition the egoist feels himself surrounded by strange and hostile individuals and all his hope is centred in his own good the good man lives in a world of friendly individuals the well-being of any of whom he regards as his own therefore although the knowledge of the lot of mankind generally does not make its disposition a joyful one yet the permanent knowledge of his own nature in all living beings gives him a certain evenness and even serenity of disposition for the interest which is extended to innumerable manifestations cannot cause such anxiety as that which is concentrated upon one the accidents which concern individuals collectively equalize themselves while those which happen to the particular individual constitute good or bad fortune thus though others have set up moral principles which they give out as prescriptions for virtue and laws which it was necessary to follow i as has already been said cannot do this because i have no ought or law to prescribe to the eternally free will yet on the other hand in the connection of my system what to a certain extent corresponds and is analogous to that undertaking is the purely theoretical truth of which my whole exposition may be regarded as merely an elaboration that the will is the in itself of every phenomenon but itself as such is free from the forms of the phenomenal and consequently from multiplicity a truth which with reference to action i do not know how to express better than by the formula of the vedas already quoted tatuam asi this thou art whoever is able to say this to himself with regard to every being with whom he comes in contact with clear knowledge and firm inward conviction is certain of all virtue and blessedness and is on the direct road to salvation but before i go further and as the conclusion of my exposition show how love the origin and nature of which we recognized as the penetration of the principium individuationis leads to salvation to the entire surrender of the will to live i e of all volition and also how another path less soft but more frequented leads men to the same goal a paradoxical proposition must first be stated and explained not because it is paradoxical but because it is true and is necessary to the completeness of the thought i have present it is this all love is sympathy section sixty seven we have seen how justice proceeds from the penetration of the principium individuationis in a less degree and how from its penetration in a higher degree there arises goodness of disposition proper which shows itself as pure i e disinterested love towards others 
When now the latter becomes perfect, it places other individuals and their fate completely on a level with itself and its own fate. Further than this it cannot go, for there exists no reason for preferring the individuality of another to its own. Yet the number of other individuals whose whole happiness or life is in danger may outweigh the regard for one's own particular well-being. In such a case, the character that has attained to the highest goodness and perfect nobility will entirely sacrifice its own well-being, and even its life for the well-being of many others. So died Codrus and Leonidas, and Regulus and Decius Moose, and Arnold von Winkelride. So dies everyone who voluntarily and consciously faces certain death for his friends or his country, and they also stand on the same level who voluntarily submit to suffering and death for maintaining what conduces and rightly belongs to the welfare of all mankind, that is, for maintaining universal and important truths and destroying great errors. So died Socrates and Giordano Bruno, and so many a hero of the truth suffered death at the stake at the hand of the priests. Now, however, I must remind the reader, with reference to the paradox stated above, that we found before that suffering is essential to life as a whole, and inseparable from it, and that we saw that every wish proceeds from a need, from a want, from suffering, and that therefore every satisfaction is only the removal of a pain, and brings no positive happiness, that the joys certainly lie to the wish, presenting themselves as a positive good, but in truth they have only a negative nature, and are only the end of an evil therefore what goodness love and nobleness do for others is always merely an alleviation of their suffering and consequently all that can influence them to good deeds and works of love is simply the knowledge of the suffering of others which is directly understood from their own suffering and placed on a level with it but it follows from this that pure love is in its nature sympathy whether the suffering it mitigates to which every unsatisfied wish belongs be great or small therefore we shall have no hesitation in direct contradiction to kant who will only recognize all true goodness and all virtue to be such if it has proceeded from abstract reflection and indeed from the conception of duty and of the categorical imperative and explains felt sympathy as weakness and by no means virtue we shall have no hesitation i say in direct contradiction to kant in saying the mere concept is for genuine virtue just as unfruitful as it is for genuine art all true and pure love is sympathy and all love which is not sympathy is selfishness eros is selfishness agape is sympathy combinations of the two frequently occur indeed genuine friendship is always a mixture of selfishness and sympathy the former lies in the pleasure experienced in the presence of the friend whose individuality corresponds to our own and this almost always constitutes the greatest part sympathy shows itself in the sincere participation in his joy and grief and the disinterested sacrifices made in respect of the latter thus spinoza says benevolentia nihil aliad est quam cupiditas ex commiseratione orta as a confirmation of our paradoxical proposition it may be observed that the tone words of language and caresses of pure love entirely coincide with the tones of sympathy and we may also remark in passing that an italian sympathy and true love are denoted by the same word pieta this is also the place to explain one of the most striking peculiarities of human nature weeping which like laughter belongs to those qualities which distinguish man from the brutes weeping is by no means a direct expression of pain for it occurs where there is very little pain in my opinion indeed we never weep directly on the account of the pain we experience but always merely on account of its repetition in reflection 
we pass from the felt pain even when it is physical to a mere idea of it and then find our own state so deserving of sympathy that we are firmly and sincerely convinced that if another were the sufferer we would be full of sympathy and love to relieve him but now we ourselves are the object of our own sympathy with the most benevolent disposition we are ourselves most in need of help we feel that we suffer more than we could see another suffer and in this very complex frame of mind in which the directly felt suffering only comes to perception by a doubly circuitous route imagined as the suffering of another sympathized with as such and then suddenly perceived again as directly our own in this complex frame of mind i say nature relieves itself through that remarkable physical conflict weeping is accordingly sympathy with our own selves or sympathy directed back on its source it is therefore conditional upon the capacity for love and sympathy and also upon imagination therefore men who are either hard-hearted or unimaginative do not weep easily and weeping is even always regarded as a sign of a certain degree of goodness of character and disarms anger because it is felt that whoever can still weep must necessarily always be capable of love i e sympathy towards others for this enters in the manner described into the disposition that leads to weeping the description which petrarch gives of the rising of his own tears naively and truly expressing his feelings entirely agrees with the explanation we have given ivo pensando e nel pensar ma sal una piera si forte di mestesso che mi conduce spesso ad alto legromar ci non salewa what has been said is also confirmed by the fact that children who have been hurt generally do not cry till some one commiserates them thus not on account of the pain but on account of the idea of it when we are moved to tears not through our own suffering but through that of another this happens as follows either we vividly put ourselves in the place of the sufferer by imagination or see in his fate the lot of humanity as a whole and consequently first of all our own lot and thus in a very roundabout way it is yet always about ourselves that we weep sympathy with ourselves which we feel this seems to be the principal reason of the universal and thus natural weeping in the case of death the mourner does not weep for his loss he would be ashamed of such egotistical tears instead of which he is sometimes ashamed of not weeping first of all he certainly weeps for the fate of the dead but he also weeps when after long heavy and incurable suffering death was to this man a wish for deliverance thus principally he is seized with sympathy for the lot of all mankind which is necessarily finite so that every life however aspiring and often rich in deeds must be extinguished and become nothing but in this lot of mankind the mourner sees first of all his own and this all the more the more closely he is related to him who has died thus most of all if it is his father although to his father his life was misery through age and sickness and though his helplessness was a heavy burden to his son yet that son weeps bitterly over the death of his father for the reason which has been given end of the fourth book the world as will second aspect the assertion and denial of the will to live when self-consciousness has been attained sections sixty six and sixty seven recording by morris